Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. I'm very excited for today's pod. I have a uh, one of my favorite posters and podcasters <laughs> on the left, uh, Todd from Beep Beep Lettuce and at Argument Winner on Twitter. Um, Todd is a so Beep Beep Lettuce. I guess we should say is a is what a it's a vegetarian leftist podcast. Is that right, Todd? Well, it's not Beep Beep <laughs> Arugula for one. Um, it's uh, it started out as a meme page um, where we took that meme kind of like a b-list meme uh where some rabbit says beep beep lettuce and it's like lol so random and then we were like what if we what if we used our powers of posting to turn beep beep lettuce into a euphemism for weed and then the page was going well and uh at the same time we had been starting talking about starting a podcast so we were like well we are we already have the name uh let's make the podcast yeah. And just for my listeners, and I guess yours too, if you're going to share this on your feed. Uh, so we've had uh, John Zigterman as well, who is also one of the co-hosts on Beep Beep on the pod a couple and of times. And so. an incredible poster. Exactly. Yes. In his own right. Uh, I, I got to say, though, you in particular, I, I really admire your posting work. It's, uh, it's pretty fantastic. Well, I think posting is... Um Posting's not really work, to be honest. It feels more of a like a biological imperative. Oh yeah, absolutely. Sisyphean. Um, I even. mean, I think almost every thought that I have is postable, and that's why I usually post every single thought that comes into my head. But your your style is more so. You're like just a sniper. You just kind of like pop up through the turret and just like <laughs> fucking bullseye somebody between the eyes. And I'm more like the Kobe. I'm like a volume poster. I just, you know, I might put up 78 one night, but I'm going to take like 50 shots to get to that number. <laughs> You're like um, the guy in Predator with the minigun, right? Exactly. Just fucking cutting down the entire jungle, but not really hitting anyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you do definitely have some hits sometimes, but uh, I think posting is... Um, as far as the frequency of my posting, it really just depends on when I have free time. Um, and for me, it's like I don't really go on Twitter thinking, I want to do a post. What am I going to do a post about? It's more I just scroll through the timeline and I'm like, what here is deserving of my or like what is necessary to comment on? Like what what's going on okay. that needs my two cents? I see. Okay. I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, I don't really, I just have thoughts that come into my head and it feels like so many of them are postable. So that's what I post primarily, or I'll be just scrolling through the timeline and something like inspires a post. That's sort of how my, my style works. Yeah. It's taken me a while to learn Twitter. Um, because I, I came from, um, Facebook where it's pretty easy to like make a meme and then, you know, get a couple hundred likes and, grow a page but on twitter it's very different because if you don't already have a following you can make the greatest post in the world but you're only going to get uh a lot of engagement on it if you you either get shared by somebody retweeted by somebody with a following or if you kind of luck into that very true uh actually john and i were talking about this last time i was on the pod and he was telling me that you were sort of reluctant to get on twitter and you're like damn it i need to (laughs) I have to learn this whole new platform, but I mean, uh, honestly, I think you're you're in my top. Like, you're on my Mount Rushmore of, of posters. <laughs> well, I will not lie. 
I, I, I feel like I've always kind of had like this weird innate talent for social media. Unfortunately, it's uh, my weird innate talent had to be on posting and not in like stockbroking or some other shit that like that. That would be yeah. like, you know, um, able to put food on the table and keep the yeah. lights on. But um, yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah, I kind of started my Same. Twitter. Um, I had avoided Twitter because I had always thought it was just like, oh, who wants to hear somebody tweet about what they had for lunch today? And not realize that there was a whole lot of discourse and 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 then an even higher amount of comedy going on on Twitter. And then I started like kind of finding myself on there. And my first attempts at posting were absolute dog shit. So it's kind of taken a while for me to get to a point where people actually give a shit what I post. Right. Yeah, shit. I joined way back in like 2008 and had no kind of clue what really like... I mean, I think Twitter was just finding its legs at that point, and there was a lot of that kind of, you know, posting about what the fuck you had for lunch at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's kind of, that was my first impression back in, like, 2008, 2009, when it was very new, and I just had that impression for about 10 years until I realized, oh, okay, this, this is kind of a fun platform. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't until, like, maybe it was about three months ago that I figured like it was you and like at capitalism disliker, which I think he's actually changed his at recently and maybe like a handful of other accounts. Um, I just like started inspiring me to post in a different way or I don't know, just to be more absurd with it. And absurdity I, I think know. is a huge thing. Um, and I think absurdity, uh, as far as like our comedy and how it's kind of evolved, um, absurdity is, this theme that you see across all platforms. And I think it kind of started on Tumblr. And then um, once left book started, it's slow lurching uh, death rattle um, kind of the only real content centers left on Facebook for like weird Facebook are uh, kind of absurdist memes. Yeah. Yeah, see, with Facebook, the whole thing is, like, I like the anonymity, especially, I mean, you see my posts, you know that they're pretty, uh, you know, they're a little bit edgelordy from time to time, so I'd rather not have that associated with my actual, like, identity. That's my biggest draw of Twitter is, like, the anonymity feature, and I can just kind of, like, let my id sort of run the show there <laughs> and not have to worry about it. Yeah, I think that was a big um, a big thing on Twitter, and um, as far as, like, the different platforms go twitter is one that has always kind of been absurd and i think it started with kind of the 140 character limit um when you had posters like drill who were constrained to 140 characters and had to do something that's fun and absurd in that small space whereas on other platforms they weren't limited like that yeah. except maybe on yeah, vine but in a different way right not that drill is on vine i would love to see drill on vine <laughs> Who is I the drill of Vine? I, I always joke that I've always been, like, I've been a poster my whole life, and Twitter sort of just gave it an outlet or a, a, a bigger platform or, or a name even. Because I was always that guy that was coming up with just fucking catchphrases and nicknames and just little, like, absurd, absurdist sort of comments all the time, little quips. Like, that's always been kind of my, my milieu, if you will. Well, for me, it was... Um Twitter, like, I did, was not particularly funny, um, like, many years ago, because I think that my humor was always, like, 
very far in my own head. And, you know, when you're joking around about, you know, some reference that like only maybe 5% of people get when you're in high school, it's a recipe for just seeming like you're an autistic weirdo. But once you get on the internet and you're exposed, you can like kind of slot into a community where, you know, the 5% of people who get that reference make up 95% of your Twitter circle. It's a little easier to develop a sense of humor that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but let's, uh, let's uh, transition, I guess we'll, we'll hopefully come back and circle around to some more fun shit, but, uh, we do have a couple of readings that we're going to do something that I usually don't do. I'm usually pretty open-ended, but, uh, let's go ahead and jump into, uh, let's see, we have an article, uh, from the Hill about, uh, about Joe Biden and me too. Yeah, this one is, is pretty interesting. Um, I just want to touch on first the New York daily news headline, uh, in the opinion section by uh, Judy Zirin, the attacks on Joe Biden will harm boys and girls alike. We all need decent, affectionate human touch. <laughs> oh, man. this And this is accompanied by a picture of Joe Biden, powder blue eyes, just looking wistfully above the camera. Incredible. <laughs> nice. I mean... I think there, though, I mean, yeah, it's easy to mock, but I think there is a point there in that, like, yes, human touch is sort of essential. And I mean, whenever you see, I'm sure you saw this post the other day, there was like, I think it's in Japan and it's people that are like encased in this sheet. Yeah. They, like roll, they roll around on the ground. And the whole point being is to sort of like simulate like human touch. So like, well, I'm of two minds, I'm of two minds here. It's like, yes, it. Obviously, in the context of Joe Biden, some of the shit he's doing is like just no. Creepy you can't fucking uncle look. You can't let these freaks gaslight you. These op-ed uh, media literati, yeah. literati well, freaks gaslight you into accepting that what Joe Biden does is just a warm, affectionate touch. What Joe Biden is doing is what like it's. I mean, if you go back, you know, decades, that was accepted as the norm, and it's not anymore. And, you know, Joe Biden is a fucking dinosaur relic from another time. But it was always yeah. about asserting power and, like, not to get all Dworkin on it because I don't necessarily agree with Dworkin. But, like, it is about power and it's also about sex and the oh, sexual sure. power that Joe Biden as a guy in a position of power has over, you know, girls as young as, like, fucking middle school that he meets at his fucking campaign events uh, there's nothing warm and affectionate about it. He's using his position of power to basically diddle like women and children. Yeah, or even I think more basically, just like the assumption that that sort of behavior is okay without any sort of you know consent of of any nature. I think is like the that's like the toxic masculinity element for me is you're sort of in like it's not a big deal. Like this is sort of this fellogocentric um i guess fucking structure that we have in in our american society to to a degree that like says this is a uh, men can sort of do whatever they want to some degree yeah it's like a uh, fellas centric and it's just for the fellas <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but i mean that's like i don't know how i'm sort of a postmodern guy so i look at this and say uh you know kind of a, from a deridian lens that you know, the philogocentric, so the, like, the masculine is the preferred category 
in Western discourse um, from kind of a structural basis. So of course, it you know deriving from that, it's going to be make so much sense for this guy to feel like, oh yeah, I'm just doing what is natural, and it's like you guys are the problem for thinking this is an issue. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it kind of illustrates how the media media will, and specifically the op-ed writer, um, like media literati class, will basically do this mental gymnastics to justify uh, this person who's very obviously a, a freak abusing his power to get some sort of power or sexual gratification. They'll they'll justify it in their heads and they'll write these op-eds to, that are basically just a, a panopticon of their own uh, mental gymnastics. Yeah, whereas they might view like Trump, they would, you know, I mean, if they would be overly sensitive towards Trump, but they're going to defer to to Biden as this like wholesome sort of character as well. Yeah, exactly. I think that and definitely it, plays into it. And yeah, and it, and it uh, kind of, I guess, leads us into this Hill um, op-ed that uh, you brought up. To me, I thought it was really interesting that I thought so many people like that I've paid attention to already kind of figured out that, you know, some sort of Me Too related thing was going to sink Biden's ship from the get go and to not even like be very concerned about him. And so I think it's really interesting to hear this writer, uh, David Oscar Marcus, (laughs) who's a criminal defense attorney in Miami, talk uh, come to like the uh, to defend uh, Biden. I mean, it's it's it was bound to happen, right? I mean, the whole thing that we saw with the Kavanaugh hearings, first off, like, I think you can think of Me Too as as like a as a political tool as a timeline, right? Um, I'm not saying that Me Too was necessarily started as a political tool. I think it was more of a um, uh, kind of a tool for people who have been marginalized to reassert power over the people who marginalized them through heinous behavior uh but then it was kind of utilized as a political tool during the kavanaugh hearings and i'm not going to say that like anything kavanaugh did you know as a judge or before he was a judge is justified because he's very obviously a heinous human being and he deserves to rot in a fucking cell but the (laughs) idea of going after kavanaugh simply for uh, what he did to Christine Blasey Ford and any other victims that may have come forward uh, was really what really proved to be completely ineffectual because he's on the Supreme Court now and the Democrats in Congress did not present a united front when they were attacking his credentials and his experience and the way he was railroaded in by the Trump administration. They fell back on this Me Too thing because it's a completely moral and a completely moralizing uh, attack, and it proved to be ineffectual. So it just goes to show that when that is now being used against Biden, the golden boy of the Democratic establishment, that of course they're going to renounce Me Too from the inside, rendering it doubly completely ineffectual. I thought it was really interesting in this article that they have a they have Kellyanne Conway is like mentioned in this article, <laughs> and she's saying that Biden's intent doesn't matter, which is I think kind of rich in the sense of like her proximity, obviously, to the Trump administration, and his obviously like taking this shit to even like another level than even well, I guess 
in a in a certain sense like maybe trump's not so overtly creepy but like definitely he's more aggressive about this shit and like with the whole grab your grabber by the pussy sort of stuff you know yeah um and it's it's interesting that you bring that up because now the conservatives who uh i think it shows that at the end of the day you know we probably we we rip on liberals a lot um but uh the the liberal establishment in some cases in these kind of moralizing situations they they do tend to act more in good faith than the Republican establishment. I'm not saying they're always in good faith or the majority of the time, um, but the Republicans, they really have no ideology and they're pretty much always just using bad faith to get their, you know, do their political goals. So, you know, going back to Kavanaugh, they're going to attack a kind of Me Too centric um, attack on a candidate, in that case for Supreme Court. And then during, you know, Biden's campaign, they're going to utilize it, you know, kind of do a flip and, and do the opposite and use Me Too to attack him because they're kind of using it opportunistically. Whereas because the Democrats are kind of this like ineffectual um, kind of just mass of uh, like cobbled together ideology, um, they're just not able to formulate a, a cogent de- defense uh, that isn't just cannibalizing their own people and their own political uh, tactics. What I think is really amusing too, in the in the context of Kellyanne Conway, is that her husband, which I think is George Conway, like really hates Trump personally, and I think even recently Trump has like come out and kind of like criticized her husband, which I think is just like what the fuck? It's it's such a bizarre scenario. Yeah, can you imagine being a fly on the wall of the Conway sex dungeon? Yeah, seriously, what the fuck <laughs> happens? Uh, I mean, I guess she's just collecting a check. Like, I mean, what else can you say? No, I, I think at this point, in order to work in the Trump administration, you have to either be just a complete and utter psychopath who, <laughs> like like Stephen Miller, who doesn't oh, give a... Well, I mean, he obviously agrees a lot ideologically with Trump, but he just seems like the kind of person who would like, like be like Lenny from mice and men, except he would take joy in crushing the mouse to death in his hand, you know? Um, or you have to just, you know, be completely on board with what Trump's doing and see, you know, locking people out of the border and putting people in concentration camps as morally right because you're defending some non-existent white American way of life. Stephen Miller is like if um, Polly Shore had a doppelganger, like a, a, <laughs> twin, a Twin Peaks style, like Dark Lodge, you know, whatever, Black Lodge uh, doppelganger yeah. that escapes into Stephen reality. Stephen Miller, he definitely came out of the Black Lodge, that's for sure. <laughs> One thing I think, a quote from this article I thought was really funny was, is they're like, it's official, the pendulum of hashtag Me Too claims has now swung too far when a friendly gesture with no sexual intent is labeled a reprehensible act that should be subject to public shaming and even disqualification from public office, it's time to recognize that we are starting to lose perspective. Yeah, that um, that just tells me that they're finally just giving up on Me Too as a political weapon, or at least the, the op-ed writers are, and then you'll see that kind of ripple out across the rest of the Democratic establishment. Um, 
at the end of the day, yeah, like it's not going after policy. It's not going after substance. It's an entirely moralizing article based entirely, sorry, it's an entirely moralizing argument based entirely in aesthetics. And, you know, True. it is, it also is great for virtual signaling to kind of uh, feed coastal libs who uh, care about that kind of stuff, but it's not a way to reach, uh, you know, middle America and the, the working class, you know, as much as, and, and people have been come under fire on, uh, on Twitter for that kind of a take where it's just like, you know, going after a candidate solely on me two grounds is not the right political move. And then somebody will attack them and say, well, oh, do you think that what Biden did was OK? Why are you defending Biden? And those people are fucking complete and utter dipshits. And they're practically they're either dumb or they're in bad faith, because like just by saying that the Democratic uh, or sorry, the yeah, the Democratic establishment is wrong for you know, defending me too. And then the people that are attacking Biden are also wrong for going after him solely on me too grounds. When he was the author of the crime bill, he did just, he was responsible for our entire generation, not being able to discharge student loans in bankruptcy. It's, it's ineffectual and it's gonna, it's gonna destroy our chances of actually uh, getting Biden to drop out of the race solely on the grounds of policy. And he did come out recently, and he was like, I'm, I'm not going to apologize for anything that I've ever done in a very, like, Trumpian sort of, of way. You mean the video, and then uh, Vic Berger did, like, a, um, an edit of that video, and then Trump actually reposted Vic Berger's <laughs> edit? Incredible. Another quote I thought was really just, like, jumped off the page from this article was this one. If it's the subjective feelings of the accuser that we prioritize over the intent of the accused, then we'll then we will have flipped our presumption of giving the benefit of the doubt to the well-meaning. Yeah, like, that. Um, <laughs> well, okay, so that's basically just completely running counter to the like quote good liberal position on Me Too uh, that you know believe all women. Uh, unless you think it's politically motivated against uh, a golden boy candidate of the uh, DNC party establishment, right? You know, if if, yeah. if it's Christine Blasey Ford accusing Kavanaugh, then obviously we believe her and what Kavanaugh did was horrible and Kavanaugh's a, a, a sex offender. But if it's, you know, this person, Lucy Flores, uh, you know, t saying that Biden did something... And now I'm not equating, you know, the two things together. Obviously, Kavanaugh is a bog monster who should be in, in shackles and Biden should just be anesthetized in a home somewhere watching Wheel of Fortune. But like um, <laughs> if you if you you can't have it both ways. Right. You can't say that uh, believe Dr. Ford, but Lucy Flores's experience is subjective and that yeah. because that destroys uh the you know that's basically pressing the nuke button on the option to use me too to go after a candidate which like i said before illustrates why it was never a uh a worthwhile strategy to pursue in exclusion of all else including like policy and stuff yeah to me though this was more like uh my read on this was you know, he's kind of dismissing the, like, the accuser's total, like, out, out of hand initially without even, like, 
and this is not like it's a it's not a crime to do what Joe Biden has done by being like a fucking creepy uncle, but um, fuck yeah, the accusers, like the people that are being made uncomfortable by him, yeah, you can't just out of hand dismiss their fucking feelings about being groped by a fucking old man. You know what I mean? It's it's true, but the reason that they're, or, or the fact that they're being dismissed and the fact that they're being called subjective illustrates how bloodless and how unprincipled the media class of kind of the like liberal establishment is like if you go after you know donald trump he's you know our pussy grabber in chief but if you go after joe biden you know those women's feelings were subjective and lucy flores worked on bernie's campaign so clearly because bernie is a russian bot and jill stein (laughs) is a russian bot then clearly it's the Russians and Putin is me tooing Joe Biden right now. And that's exactly <laughs> what's happening. I'm very intelligent. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty nuts. And then I thought it was uh, another quote here that I thought was really, I found amusing kind of sit out was whenever they're asking, um, about, uh, like, are we, What's next? Are we going to criminalize the close talker? Like this was an like this is a fucking episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm or something like close talking. Yeah, this is this completely uh, almost exactly parallels the arguments that were made uh, early on in Me Too, where um, kind of the old school dudes like like and it's it's funny that he you know brings up close talker because I'm pretty sure it was Jerry Seinfeld was one of these you know, old school media guys, comedy guys that was going around and being like, oh, I can't do anything in the workplace now. It's like, shut the fuck up, dude. Like this slippery slope bullshit, like fuck off. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, I don't know about you, but close talkers have always kind of freaked me out. But like, I wonder though, is it just that I'm like such a fucking like autistic freak that I just don't like like I'm it's kind of weird to I mean I kind of see the other point about like especially with close talking and and specifically it's like it does kind of creep me out when people are like too much in my face you know what I mean I don't know about you but close Um, talking fucking freaks me out a little bit I think that in a professional context um when there isn't like sort of um a sexual dynamic going on and it's just someone being a close talker um, I think that is an assertion of power. Um, and if anybody ever tries to pull that on me in a professional context, I usually assert like kind of a aura of uncomfortableness back towards them. I do something uh, to make them uncomfortable. Um, so they back <laughs> off. But in, in more of like a social sociable context, uh, you know, being a close talker uh, is completely unrelated to anything that Biden has done and, and bringing that up is, is just a obvious deflection on the part of this op-ed writer. Yeah. It's totally like you said, slippery slope sort of bullshit for sure. Yeah. I, I thought it was really uh, amusing too, that this guy is a defense a- attorney talking about how victims feelings don't matter. I don't know. I just thought that was a little bit fucked up for, you know, this defense attorney to be saying that, coming out and saying you know what i mean it just rubs me a little bit as awkward or weird 
Yeah, it's a little weird. Um, obviously, in the in a court of law, um, you know, it's very hard to, and that's probably the reason that a lot of these women haven't really like come forward. It's because, you know, in a court of law, how do you prove harassment? How do you prove uh, something that's not like cut and dry? Uh, and right. because I, you know, I'm sure there's a team of PR and uh, like branding and marketing people in the Biden camp working around the clock trying to figure out how to spin this scandal in order to, yeah. you know, make Biden look as harmless as possible and then send out, you know, their carrier pigeons to the various uh, publications and op-ed hives in uh, in Manhattan to get these articles written and this is what they came up with. It's, you know, he's just being a, a nurturing old man. <laughs> and also in that context of like, this is like the Joe Biden position is sort of the status quo in, in many senses. And you have to think like the judges and the, the attorneys and even the, I don't know if this even comes to when, you know, when you're talking about a jury, but like this is so, sort of the like default mode of operation for, for a lot of people. Is this sort of you mean uh, um, like toxic? You mean toxic Biden's behavior? Like, like as far as as far as toxic masculinity being in, in a lot of respects the sort of status quo. Well, here's I, I don't necessarily know if I would call this toxic masculinity. Um, I think that that, that uh, toxic masculinity, at least to me, uh, in kind of the the larger media narrative, sounds more like the like ass grabbing in in like the mad men style office oh yeah uh well, type true. of I mean, harassment yes. yeah this seems a lot more insidious it, this seems I think like it can um take, yeah but i think it can seems, take a lot more of a subtle form like people that like this is the default like that's why like he's coming from this bygone era where this sort of behavior was the standard and the norm so he's like not even hip to what like the new reaction against that Sort of well, that. I'm even beginning to think that th that's another thing that the media has has gaslit us about because I don't think that bending down and rubbing your nose in a girl's hair for 15 oh, yeah, seconds was yeah, ever the norm back in the 50s. True. Like I've seen a lot of episodes of Mad Men and I don't know if I ever saw somebody <laughs> do that. OK, um, so what it basically is and follow me here because this is kind of this is going to. This is going to be a, a fucking whirlwind of, of brain, galaxy brain thinking. But here's what I'm thinking. Okay. You hear a lot about if toxic masculinity is a thing, well, what what, what does non-toxic masculinity look like? And I guess the dominant answer would be like Mr. Rogers or uh, Bob Ross or, you know, what it boils down to, or Steve Irwin, like nurturing and kind of, you know, protecting and sheltering without uh, like – being overtly, um, you know, toxically masculine, non-toxic masculinity. And I think that what Joe Biden does is use this guise of being nurturing and non-toxically masculine to get close to women and small children because that's how he gets off. That's, that's how he gets off. Like, he infiltrates hmm. the space. So it's, it's more insidious than just toxic masculinity. It's... Uh, it's literally sexual gra or sexual or power gratification under the guise of 
being a non-toxically masculine public figure. Okay. Hmm. You follow? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. This is like a this is a difficult topic for me to parse, I think. Um, Cause I do think like there's, I mean, to me, the whole aspect of toxic, toxic masculinity or what have you, or even like just the whole idea being like, there's an assumption that like men have this, like they don't even, it's so baked into the culture that they don't even question themselves to think about these behaviors, whether it be like fucking sniffing somebody's hair or grabbing somebody's ass in the workplace like that they think that's the that's like the status quo that they're upholding to a degree and i mean obviously maybe not so much anymore like in the in the 2000s but you know pr- kind of i mean even to that shit people still probably do that kind of weird shit um but it's like the fact that these men aren't questioning themselves and thinking it's okay to me that i think is something that i identify as the primary, this is how this stuff functions. Yeah. Yeah. So it does definitely have its roots in toxic masculinity. Um, but I, I think it's important that we recognize the insidious nature of the behavior and the insidious nature of the kind of gaslighting that's, that's being done by the, the media reporting on this, convincing us that no, you know, back in the days of, um, uh, Lucy, you know, I love Lucy. Like everybody was sniffing women's hair for 15 seconds at a time and like (laughs) doing weird kissing motions and shit like that. It's like, uh, I mean, you remember like the fucking movies back in the day? It used to be like, I mean, back in in the fifties, like the movies and shit, like women are like, you would like slap a woman and shit like that. And that's in the media. That's in like Hollywood. So, you know, I, I I think it absolutely was a thing. And, Fuck, I'm trying to think even, like, in something as recent as, like, Blade Runner, there's, like, that fucking awkward, pretty aggressive, a lot of people refer to it as a rape scene, where he just fucking, like, grabs Rachel and is, like, fucking just starts making out with her forcefully and shit, which Are is Are you really talking about the new, the new one, no, 2049? the original. The original oh. with uh, Harrison Ford, yeah. Yeah, it's been so many years since I've seen that. I, I honestly, I forget a lot of parts of it because I saw it as a kid. But it sort of it harkens back like the whole construct of Blade Runner is sort of a neo noir take on these like old school hard boiled detective stories, you know, something yeah. like something that a Humphrey Bogart or one of these like forties, fifties era, thirties, forties, fifties era characters would have done, you know, they're like, Ah, oh, this dame, I'm gonna smack her on the face and ah, see? Put her in a yeah. place. Well to to your point about like neo noir and, and uh the whole Blade Runner thing kind of relates to how like um uh how westworld uh i i personally think westworld is a dog shit television show but i've seen all the episodes (laughs) and that's part of the reason why i think it's dog shit is because i've seen it all and it's just really really bad but like westworld you you know the whole premise is that you can get away with anything because they're robots and so these people these these humans that, that have money you know, there's a whole class angle to it. They go in and they, you know, they rape and they pillage like they're old West cowboys and they do unspeakable horrific acts beyond anything that actually happened in the old outlaw West. And it's all like it's it's presented as this like galaxy brain take on like, oh, this is what would happen if there were robots. But it it 
it what it doesn't do is get into kind of the the power dynamics and class angles of those kind of situations and just puts it into a sci-fi context with very little actual examination it's just like reveal after reveal it's like wait this guy was a robot too yeah uh i mean i won't i won't get into westworld at this moment (laughs) because i did quite enjoy the first season a lot i didn't like the second so much but I don't know, my, my reading was different um, in that I thought it was more like these robots are sort of like a stand-in almost for the sort of the proletariat and the working class in themselves that just are to get exploited for the benefit of, of the wealthy people that can afford to go to Westworld. Oh, but, I agree. Uh, I think that that is a reading that is good and is not the reading that most of the people that are watching Westworld are having because most oh, yeah. of the people aren't they're not like us, you know, they haven't read a bunch of, uh, you know, communist literature. Yeah. Cause it was, to me, it was like Dolores was this, uh, revolutionary figure who's in some ways, I mean, it's an analog for gain, gaining class consciousness to realize, okay, these are our oppressors and then rising up and carrying out the revolution. She's Although like I a Rosa Luxemburg really, type figure yeah. doing, um, doing reverse Gamergate against the human oppressors. Yeah, although I don't think they quite stuck the landing in the second <laughs> season with with it. But uh, um, unless you have some more comments on that initial article, I'd kind of like to move on to this next one. No, I think I'd like to move on as well because <laughs> I'm getting a little nauseous uh, just yeah, thinking about Joe I, Biden. I'm not very. I'm. I'm. I honestly don't feel that well equipped to deal with Me Too that well. I mean, it's just not something that I'm that confident speaking about in general other than to say like i definitely recognize toxic masculinity being a thing and you at least need to like be aware self-aware enough to like realize there are boundaries with people and you can't just you know assert your dominance over someone or what have you and think that it's just okay to invade someone's personal space without any kind of uh you know acquiescence of to a degree yeah, absolutely. But I, I do want to reiterate that I I respect that like you don't feel that it's your place to comment on Me Too as a guy. But at the end of the day, if Me Too is being used cynically as a political weapon to prop up people that are just horrific, unspeakably evil humans, then it doesn't matter who you are. You need to recognize that and speak yeah. up about it. Yeah, I mean, that that's a strong point. I'll I'll agree with you there. Um, so the next article that we tackled was um, something that actually old, old pimp David Brooks of the New York Times <laughs> had uh, shared via his Twitter feed, and it's an article um, by Neil Clark in the American Conservative titled Pete Seeger's Conservative Socialism. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I'm not much – folk is not my genre. Um, you know, I, I really need those 808s slapping in the background. <laughs> Yeah, you for need me to those really fuck with it. high hats. Exactly. So, you know, I've never been one to be a big fan of folk music or like any related genre. <laughs> Coming well, from Pete like a Seeger... rural background myself, like I fucking just disavow all of that kind of sort of quarter of music in, in general, whether it be like country western or like anything that's sort of even adjacent to it. I'm just like, eh, not, not really my thing, but you, maybe I'm being provincial. You like all music, you like all music, uh, excluding 
No, including rap, but excluding country. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one th- <laughs> this is a really funny quote from a... This was a long time ago. Uh, somebody quoted that country music is the Special Olympics of music. <laughs> and I kind of agree with that. That's great. Um, you know, I have my too, own... Uh, <laughs> I have my own opinions on uh, country music that uh, would probably come as a surprise to a lot of uh, my fellow posters and maybe even your podcast listeners, which I'm not really going to share on the pod. But, um, you know, Pete Seeger was a legend of folk music and he was also uh, an activist um, starting in the 40s, you know, supporting labor movements and traveling um, because he... uh, was kind of this um, voice of the working class in a lot of ways. And then um, he was a victim of McCarthyism um, in the 50s, even after he had had a bunch of hit records with his band. And then in the 60s, uh, and then later in the 70s, he was um, uh, a Vietnam War activist. So, uh, And he was also an avowed communist for a lot of his life, um, which made him an enemy of the, the establishment um, but what uh, David Brooks is arguing in this um, uh, in this article is that Pete Seeger's communism is, or sorry, Pete Seeger's socialism is conservative socialism. So uh, earlier this week, David Brooks posted a um, a kind of data graphic of the 2016 well, no, that, electorate. That- the, that let so this article post let then he got a lot of heat for posting this particular article. Okay, and that's when he came out with that political compass oriented graphic that you're talking about. Gotcha. Okay, um, which is interesting because it kind of mirrors the the political chart compass memes that yeah, we see. For you sure. know, ec- uh, you know, economically and socially, left and right, um, and what. It seemed like to, what I, I what I posted at the time was that, uh, hey guys, David Brooks is arguing that we need a uh, tanky vanguard, um, which I, <laughs> you know, I'm not necessarily, you know, full Stalin, but like that would be pretty cool if David Brooks was arguing in favor of a tanky vanguard. Um, but what he is is really just arguing is, um, it's we need a Nazi party is basically what he's saying. <laughs> Yeah, uh, kind of this identitarian socialism, um, socialism for white men, socialism for gamers, which I actually am a supporter of, uh, specifically socialism <laughs> for gamers, um, as I am a gamer. Um, but basically saying that among socialists, there's there could be some uh, reaction to like debaucherous uh, attitudes towards sexuality and towards you know social norms. Um, I want to come back at this and kind of say that I think David Brooks is coming from at this from the wrong angle, um, because what essentially the elements of the left that are all about hedonism and rejecting social conformity and social conservatism are, they are also reactionary. I'm not necessarily saying they're bad, and I'm not necessarily saying that dismantling the status quo with regards to sexuality and uh um sexuality and gender and gender roles and societal expectations of what you should be and who you should be i'm not saying that dismantling the status quo is a bad thing because i am somebody who who firmly believes in dismantling that status quo but if you come at it from a reactionary 
standpoint where your only goal is to uh, react to what came before you, you'll be ideologically empty when it actually comes time to living to, to live in the in the society that you've created once you've destroyed what was the status quo. And that's when uh, that vacuum is then going to be filled by corporations that can commodify and sell to you in the way that, for example, corporations are co-opting all sorts of social movements nowadays. Hmm. So my, my take on this article was that i don't know he was like conflating because at least in the article that i that i read he was conflating like pete pete seeger had basically these almost anaprim like beliefs and that was the conservatism that he was sort of referring to whereas i don't know david brooks is trying to make this point that there's like a social conservative and i don't think those are they're talking about the same things and i didn't really see anything in the article that tried to link Peter Seeger as this really social conservative that David Brooks was seemingly, at least to me, trying to argue for. Well, the the article about Pete Seeger was by Neil Clark, um, not David Brooks. But I think David oh, Brooks. Oh well, yeah, I mean, he posted it, but fairly surface level Sorry. reading of it when he posted the article, um, yeah. because it really doesn't support what David Brooks is claiming at all. Um, but it does bring up an interesting point about. Uh, the modern left in th- that is that um, a lot of a lot of people are um, and and you know my co-host on beep beep John Paul Zygtman, um he posted a doctored political chart meme that had this political chart the 2016 electorate oh, just yeah, in that. the upper right quadrant which yeah. was pretty funny um, yeah no, but I, I mean that's that very post. that's very accurate right because at the end of the day um, if you're, if you're within the acceptable bounds of political discourse in modern American politics, you're within a very small area and, uh, you're in a very small area of what's acceptable to talk about. So we're not really getting anywhere, uh, radical by saying, you know, um, it's okay to, to have an abortion and it's okay to do gay marriage and it's okay to, you know, like those things are obviously good and ostensibly important to get past and, and they're being used as these wedge issues p- because it's politically advantageous to, for the right wing to do so. But uh, for the, the left to make, um, you know, social issues, it's sole uh, driving force is just leaving a lot of people behind in the dirt because there are people who belong to those marginalized. Like what good is if you're a, if you're queer or if you're uh, of a marginalized ethnicity, what good is a society in which racism and sexism and homophobia don't exist? If you're absolutely destitute and you're a slave to this neo-feudal techno uh, like dystopic world in which you get paid cents to work in an Amazon warehouse somewhere, you know, and then go home to like not experience racism and sexism and homophobia. What, what good is not experiencing prejudice if you're living in just absolute, uh, neo like feudal 
just late stage neoliberal slavery. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that's absolutely true, and I think that's maybe the the calculus that still has yet to be figured out on the left is how do we merge like class analysis with identitarian sort of or like intersectionality because I do think that you know even if we change the material conditions I don't know that that is immediately going to eradicate all these other like social prejudices that that exist in society like I think it's very possible that racism and sexism could persist in a communist world to like to some degree yeah possibly um but I think that a lot of those things are born out of uh, the zero-sum game idea of capitalism, right? Yeah. I mean, it definitely encourages that sort of mindset for sure. In order but to I be capitalist, you have to have an underclass. And what is the easiest way to subjugate people? It's by race because it's written on the on on your skin, yeah, right? Exactly. What race yeah, you are. True. Right. If you're, okay. you know, Italian, right? Like, and or, or Irish, you know, they were slaves. <laughs> Um, uh, we joke about that a lot on Twitter, but like realistically, um, there's probably still going to be prejudice left over, uh, if tomorrow you eliminate all forms of wage labor and institute fully automated luxury space communism, right? But those are remnants of a time when that kind of subjugation was used as a way to, uh, instill to perpetuate the hegemonic dominance of one identity or class of people over another, a time when class and identity were more entwined than they are today. If you had humanity in a vacuum and you still had all these distinct identities, but you never had capitalism in the first place, I highly doubt that you would have the vast majority the vast majority of of prejudice would be out the window in an, a society that had always been post scarcity because like what reason do you have to hate other people if all of your material needs are met yeah very true but i i don't know i, I still think it's somewhat possible um and i and i've been thinking about this question a lot in the sense of just due to human subjectivity, and I don't know how familiar you are with Emil Durkheim, but his sort of um, concept or theory of deviance was that deviance serm- serves a positive function in society. And so in, ter- in, in a sense, we will always kind of re-describe what is deviant at any point. Like it's always, like those goalposts are always going to be subjective and they're always going to move. So can we ever really reach this point where we eliminate like negative behavior in human society? I, I don't know. That's look, that's a very difficult question to answer for me. Well, I personally believe that the vast majority of antisocial behavior is a direct or indirect result of uh, the capitalist class structure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm totally, I'm, I'm mostly on board, but I, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm skeptical that, the revolution is going to solve all these social problems. And that's why I think I'm more so on the anarchic side of things. Well, it's not going to solve all of those social problems because they don't go away, you know, in our, in our beautiful, you know, hypothetical where we eliminate wage labor, labor and capitalism overnight. 
Um, the next morning you wake up and suddenly it, you live in post scarcity. Like those things just don't go away. Right. Right. So you do need a, a synthesis of, uh, class analysis and identity analysis in order to get to a point where there's no longer prejudice on identity or class lines. But to, to, to your point about, um, how there's always going to be deviance in society. Um, yes, of course. Humans, I mean, like, you know, it goes back to the myth of Sisyphus, right? We live to make ourselves miserable. Like, you can have, you can have the most amazing... Like, Donald Trump is a miserable person inside. He is an absolutely miserable person. He's this narcissist who on, is only propelled on by a hatred for himself that he will never be good enough probably from his father if i had to guess um but like every single human being alive will self-sabotage at some point and do something that will actively make them more miserable without realizing that they will do it so what does that mean if and when we ever achieve post-scarcity does that, you know, it goes back to like one of the biggest commentaries from the movie The Matrix, which is one of my favorite films of all time, is that the first Matrix was perfect and people rejected it like like it was, you know, their their bodies couldn't handle a perfect world in which there was no pain and suffering. Yeah. So is right. pain and suffering this this integral part of the human experience? And in yeah, post scarcity, exactly. what does that look like? And I honestly don't know. Right. That's interesting. I was having that same kind of uh, talk about kind of a ph phenomenology a few podcasts ago with uh, with the guests, and about like, yeah, do we need this? Do we need this sort of dichotomous suffering? You know, whatever satisfaction, like that tension. Is that something that we need always? Can we really exist, or are we always just going to keep redefining what it means to be happy? to some degree. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, and I think that's kind topic. of dovetailing into what you're, you're totally describing there. Yeah. I think this is a topic that comes up in a lot of media nowadays. It's like people, our lives are so different and have changed so much in just a few thousand years, but evolution of our bodies and our brains has not kept up. So now we're all running around popping Adderall and Xanax and Prozac uh, in order to deal with living in, you know, 400 foot tall rectangles and <laughs> driving, you know, fossil fuel spewing uh, machines to work and, and sitting in a cubicle all day instead of just running in the fucking woods or something. Yeah. And uh, it, I mean, that's a topic that's been covered. And I don't know if there's necessarily a, a real consensus yet, but I'd like to think that in a post scarcity world, there would be more resources that would be allocated towards researching why humans feel that way and, and why humans, when all their needs are met, um, you know, don't necessarily feel perfect. Uh, and what I, what I think happens under capitalism is that resources get allocated to what's profitable. So they just develop drugs that they can give you to make you feel less existential, to make you feel like, you know, you to make you more useful to the as a cog in the capitalist machine. 
But if there wasn't that profit motive anymore and the sole motive was what was better for the collective human society, then I think that you would see actual progress being made both uh, therapeutically and in like the development of therapy for people who aren't quite ready to accept a post-scarcity lifestyle and also possibly a pharmaceutical aspect to that as well, but not with the profit motive that our current pharmaceutical industry has. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, to, to get back to the article itself, because we haven't really, <laughs> we just kind of went off on a tangent there. But I thought that something that was really interesting um, in the context of the conservatism that Seeger was embracing, um, here's a direct quote from the article, was, I want to take, I want to turn the clock back to when people lived in small villages and took care of each other, which feels like this guy is totally yeah, I mean, an, that's a, and prim or like post-civ vibes there for sure. Yeah, I think that um, kind of the, the explosive growth of humanity um, has also contributed to our rampant mental health problems because we all, especially in cities, but we all live on top of each other. Um, I am in a high rise right now in a city and above me is a person in an apartment and below me is a person in an apartment to my left and to my right uh, are also people in apartments and humanity obviously didn't evolve to live like this physically uh, in our brains. You know, it doesn't really compute, but we're forced into these situations and thank, thankfully there's a, some degree of neural plasticity, but city life and even rural life and, and suburban life, especially, I mean, we talk about the psychotic nature of the American suburbs on beep beep a lot, but like, we're not, we're not meant for this kind of life. So Pete Seeger, I think is onto something, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a small village. It can be a village with a lot of people, but it needs to be designed right. And that's another thing we touched on in BP Lettuce when we had Do Not Eat on and talked about urban planning. Yeah. Yeah, because everything is sort of functioning around capital's wants and capital's needs and capital's flows versus human flourishing in so many regards. And I mean, obviously you can look at that with infrastructure and any number of different things related to infrastructure is this is all designed with the primacy of the profit element being like the driving force of how everything is organized to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. Our cities are built around funneling labor towards uh, capital and, uh, and not really built around uh, any sort of human interaction or relations. You see it in cities that are built around cars you know, cars. Oh, yeah. I mean, I live in Austin, Texas, and it's totally like I-35. The entire city is organ organized around that. Like, so it's really expansive from north to south. I mean, you pretty much have like a, a full like municipal, well, not municipal, like metropolitan block stemming from like very like maybe 30 miles north of Austin. And it's almost approaching San Antonio, which is, you know, maybe, you know, I'm approximating, it's about a hundred miles or so of, and it's all just like conglomerated around that central hub of, of the interstate and commerce traveling up through, it's like Dallas to San Antonio is the big corridor as far as, as Texas is concerned. And yeah, so like that sounds from daunting. From east, from east to west, Austin in particular is very like there's not like it's so much more expansive north to south than it is east to west, and it's because you have that central hub 
of the interstate kind of like cutting through everything. And there's not a lot of, um, you know, outside of that, it's like it's causing huge problems in terms of traffic because that's the central hub that everything is flowing around is I-35. Yeah. And there's not a lot of like east-west traffic and you have like the sort of NIMBY people that are preventing, you know, better infrastructure from being placed in there and there's not a lot of public transit. It's just a fucking nightmare. Yeah, it sounds like a fucking nightmare, but... um. <laughs> something that I've noticed when I've gotten the chance to get out into more rural spaces, but specifically like areas of the country that have been preserved through national and state park systems. Um, do you kind of get that when you're in a wide open space, far from like rural area, uh, sorry, uh, far from urban areas. Do you kind of feel that relief? Uh, I feel that. I don't know if that's like a common feeling. I mean, one thing that's really badass about Austin, and it's court kind of shitty that it's turning into like this new LA vibe, but we have like a green belt in the heart of the city. We have a spring fed swimming pool in the heart of the city. So it's like you can go out and hike and be fucking in nature and be on like a creek that's fucking beautiful with flowing water right in the heart of the city, which is fucking awesome and it's amazing. So, yeah, that's fantastic. And then, I mean, I grew up on, I grew up on a cattle ranch. Like I'm the total fucking Texas guy. Like I've done real cowboy shit in my days. Nice. But I definitely prefer, I prefer city living just because there's more to do. There's more going on. There's more of a cultural vibe than there is in these smaller knit communities are very like, I mean, it's like traveling back into a fucking time capsule where shit like society changes so much more slowly whenever you travel back to these rural communities they're very insular it's like if you're if you're not part of the status quo there it's very like tight-knit so it's easy to like exclude people from that status quo and and sort of alienate people that are less well-off or like less fitting into whatever narrative that's prevalent within that community so it has it, it has its problems just as much as I think the anonymity and the detached feelings of a, maybe a place like New York City. You know what I mean? It's just like yeah. trading certain elements for others. Because for me, coming to, like, I fucking love New York in the sense that I can fucking be walking down the street and nobody's going to fucking stop me and talk to me unless, you know, unless it's one of those dudes trying to give me their fucking mixtape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is kind of a relief rather than being like everyone knows your fucking name and everyone knows your face and they like know your family for generations. That shit gets really old and can really be a burden just as much as, you know, feeling isolated or detached. So I, I don't know what the, the synthesis is there. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough to find a, a happy medium. And I think what it comes down to is uh, having um, voluntary... Uh, community spaces where people can gather and and do activities and and the problem with that though is that people bring uh that sentiment into spaces where spaces that have a purpose right and what you've seen recently in some dsa chapters is people viewing the dsa kind of as a church or as a dating pool uh, which is fucking disgusting um, <laughs> I mean, it makes or, sense or like as, like a, as a child care place, like bringing their kids in it to a DSA meeting and expecting um, 
there to be provisions for childcare, you know? But I mean, that, yeah, that third thing speaks to kind of the, the fact that we as a society don't really take care of our children, uh, for parents that don't have the money to pay for childcare. So that is, I, I guess that doesn't really vibe with the first two things. Um, but yeah, you were saying, I mean, at the, at the same time though, it's like late capitalism is, has accelerated so far. And I just think of this metaphor of like, it's a fucking record that is spinning so fast in terms of RPMs that it's dissolving the bonds between the social bonds between all of us. Like it's the, like the concept of the great rip in cosmology or astrophysics Mm. where like the universe just expands so far that like everything just rips apart because there's no, like it's accelerating at the speed that the bonds simply cannot hold. And we don't have a lot of these community groups or, you know, people are so fucking atomized by late capital that there is no community. Like there, there aren't groups like in urban areas, like most of the small communities have rotary clubs and like the Knights of Columbus and all that kind of shit and churches and what have you like. So there's still some sort of, so, like these communal spaces, but in the cities, it's just like fucking dog eat dog. It's, you know, you're just an individual. You come home to your apartment or you come home to your house and don't talk to your neighbors and shut everything out. So it kind of makes sense that people would be hungry for um, something more. And politics, I think is a convenient option for that essentially. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that hunger there, and I think people deserve to be able to fill that hole in their heart uh, with something. But when it comes, when it, when it becomes kind of uh, like, you know, your political organizing has this ulterior motive of making you feel less alienated under capitalism, like that means the political organizing is not the the, the thing that that's coming first in your. Uh, motivation to go to these meetings the thing that that comes first is is your social needs and i think that's selfish yeah i mean to a degree but i mean material conditions as well you know like i can't i can't really criticize someone for like coming from that angle that makes sense like i can totally relate to being just this fucking atomized individual and seeking out some type of larger group to be a, a part of and feel connected and feel a sense of community. I mean, that's what humanity is all about to some degree. So I don't know. I'm of two minds. Yeah, on this that's too, fair. You know? I totally see what you're saying though. Sorry, you're breaking up again. Oh, so I was just saying that um, I'm, I'm kind of of two minds on this topic because with the way that late capital is really atomizing us, like I totally get why people would like seek out a community of like-minded individuals. And that's what like DSA can provide in some respects or these other whatever community organizing groups, like those are human needs too. Um, So I, I don't know. It's a difficult to, to navigate what's selfish and what is like essential to human thriving or like feeling connected to a group of people when we're so just, strung out and like isolated from one another. Well, if you're feeling strung out and isolated from one another, one another, don't go to a DSA meeting for, uh, you know, your, your social needs go on Twitter post. That's what it's there for. (laughs) Yeah. Right. 
I suppose. Yeah, but just I, a thought. Yeah. I mean, then again, too, I mean, it is, I mean, it is kind of cool. Like, I definitely have met, like, obviously yourself, John, several other people that I've had on the podcast that I think it is cool to have that kind of, like, you know, people connected all over the globe. Like, I did a podcast with a guy from Denmark, and I think that really shows the promise of what technology can do and what the Internet really can do for organizing and for people. But at the same time, I don't think there's any replacement for some, like face-to-face interaction with people. Yeah, for sure. I think that when it when it brings people in the door, that feeling of belonging and meaning, I think that it's good. But when it's the only thing keeping you there, I think that you need to take like people that not not you specifically, obviously, think people that fall into that category need to take a look at their own motivations and figure out why they're really there and what's keeping them there. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's fair. No, I'm not saying like, go home. Yeah. But I mean, I'm not, we're, I'm not, that's the thing though, is like, what's, what's at home is, is what there's no community. There's no, you know what I mean? You're just going home to your little filing cabinet. No, I'm not, I'm not saying go home. I'm saying like, so if you're only going to DSA meetings because it's your social outlet, then you need to figure out why you care more about a social outlet than about uh, being a part of a, a so mass social change movement, yeah. you know? And you need to better embody the ideals that, you know, by being there, you tacitly claim to support. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think I get what you're saying. Um, maybe I'm, yeah, what I'm basically saying is that we need to, to, to do a, have a purity test for the DSA that involves (laughs) drawing blood and using tarot cards and using a psychic. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) But, uh, if it's okay, uh, Todd, I'd like to maybe transition to let's fucking, let's lighten the mood a little bit. Yeah. Maybe we can go go back to, uh, posting or if you want to talk about, uh, some of your fucking sad boy emo raps that you've released on SoundCloud, which I thought was was pretty fucking cool, to be honest. Yeah, I, I do make beats in my spare time, and sometimes I do emo rap um, uh, under the name Suede Jesus, all one word. You can look it up on SoundCloud. Um, it's something that I do. Um, it started because I uh, was talking about uh, the death of Lil Peep and how I firmly believe that the United States government was responsible for his death and the death of thousands, tens of thousands of other, um, I don't know, is it hundreds of thousands in the opioid crisis at this point? Uh, I think it's tens or hundreds of thousands of Americans. It's, I think it's millions Millions? to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a public health tragedy and, um, something that Bryn, my co-host on beep beep brought up was that emo rap, um, is a coalition building movement. Uh, it's kind of this, uh, colorless, uh, raceless, uh, or like not raceless, but like, uh, encompassing of all races, um, musical movement that is, uh, a togetherness initiative in the face of this horrific tragedy that is the opioid and drug epidemic that's going on right now. And, uh, that got me interested in listening to more of it. And then I was just like, well, I have something to say, and I saw a lot of his like tongue-in-cheek lyrics and stuff like that. But it's fun to make, 
it's fun to make beats yeah. and and just put them out there and see what people think and i i'm not really trying to like play you know fucking shows or like yeah you know, get, sell records it's just right. something that i do for fun on the side yeah i mean i totally yeah i think that shit is a lot of fun um so having grown up i think it's really interesting for me like um and i don't know how old you are but i'm in my like mid to late thirties. And I sort of grew up outside of Houston, which is where like that whole lean culture, syrup sipping culture, like originated. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with like Swisha house at all, or like DJ screw or any of that stuff, but it was all like the, the fucking slowed down, like the chopped and screwed music. I fucking, that's what I like cut my teeth on in high school and shit. Like, um, so back I think before it's, trap was called trap. And when it was, called southern rap right yeah that just style. like third third coast um i don't know i'm just trying to think like the the origins of it i mean a lot of people have said like memphis is a big influence with like project pat and uh some of the other rappers that started atlanta, out there but for sure definitely like there's that whole south atlanta memphis like houston pipeline definitely yeah. was very influential on on what's popular now with this trap music. And like, it's funny cause I have these friends that are sort of music snobs that are like, Oh, all this trap now is just like trash and the mumble rap stuff. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like this shit is very clearly drawing its inspiration and lineage from this Houston rap scene that we sort of grew up on. Yeah. But I think that the aesthetics are different. And that is might be what is drawing uh, driving people away from it, um, but it, it, the the aesthetics are really only different on the surface level. I mean, if you if you go back, um, mumble rap and like this whole kind of new uh, age of of hip hop and rap is like basically as true to rap's roots as it's ever been. You know, I think there 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 was a time in kind of like probably between like 2003 to like 2009 where shit was kind of a little out of whack and it's kind of the pendulum has swung back and aesthetically, but also ideologically rap is much more back in the kind of idea of like, I'm coming up with people that I, you know, that were in my neighborhood and we are taking care of each other and there's a togetherness aspect to it. Because for me, like, I don't, and I don't know how familiar you are with, like, do you, are you familiar with, like, people like Fat Pat or Big Mo or any of that kind of stuff? Uh, not really. Not really. I mostly listened to, like, nerdcore rap when I was a teenager. Okay. I mean, because this is, like, like late 90s era shit. Well, I'm in my late 20s, so, um, oh, okay. I was, yeah. uh, I probably have a decade on you then. Yeah, yeah. I was still in the N64. Uh, <laughs> on the couch listening to Pink Floyd, you know, and like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I am not a gamer. I basically anything after 16 bits is just too complicated for me. Too many bits. It's, I can't, I can't fuck around bits. when I'm moving around on the X and Y and a whatever, like four dimensions. That's just too, I'm too old for that shit. I couldn't yeah, ever the keep only, up. The only place where you can keep where, where you can have more than sixteen bits is on your Twitter timeline, where you're posting hundreds of bits a day. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, yeah just bits, just give folks. me the bits are good. 
give me an old side scroller, uh, fucking 2D, and and I'm happy. And I'm hoping that after the revolution, the only video game that will be allowed is uh, is Tetris, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, the the Tetris games are actually you're stacking boxes in a warehouse uh, where we keep all of the extra food because it's post scarcity, right? Hell yeah. But, but yeah, uh, I mean, we do the podcast as well. Um, beep beep is fun. Um, my podcast mates and I are kind of stoked at how people actually want to come on our podcast now. And then, uh, this is, I think this is, I'm pretty sure this is the first time I've guested on somebody else's podcast. I hope I'm doing okay. Yeah, you're good, man. You're good. Hell yeah. I'm glad to have you. Like I said, I admire your fucking posts very much. I definitely uh, tune in to Beep Beep frequently. Maybe not every episode, but uh, I, I do enjoy it. I really enjoy it. Right. I mean, it's hit or miss, right? <laughs> I really enjoyed the, the ones one you want to listen did to with, are the ones with the good guests. With mandatory OT, that one was fucking hilarious. Uh, there that was one, I, there. Uh, the Jake I, Flores, I, remember, I thought that was pretty cool too. Yeah, I think so, like those episodes, the one with the Trailbillies, um, the one I haven't with, listened uh, to that Eve yet. from Dumb Bitch Media, like those are some of those episodes. I listened to that, yeah. Like I uh, would do not eat. Like I don't stop smiling the entire time we record the episode. So that's how I know that is. It's just a. It's a great episode. You know. Yeah, I had the mandatory OT guys on the pod, and it was just hard to. Whenever it's more than one on one, it's really tough. So I don't know how you do it with three co-hosts and then like multiple guests. Well, I, I personally talk too much, but it's because <laughs> I'm the funniest person on my podcast. I I mean, you're pretty good. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I'll give uh Now John, John is good at the long form jokes. Yeah. Um, uh, Bryn, I think is really good at absurdist humor and, uh, Chris is really good at, uh, using kind of, um, hyperbole and sarcasm to, uh, expose the hypocrisies of modern neoliberalism in a humorous way. I think we all have our I was thinking about, I'm really, I'm just good at gaming humor. I was thinking this, you guys have a perfect dynamic for like the fantastic four, because like <laughs> I, I view you, you're sort of the Reed Richards of the group. And then Bryn is like the invisible girl. Uh, <laughs> I, I will go with uh, Chris as the human torch. And then John as, as the thing. Yeah. <laughs> but that's just my that's read. That's good. I think yeah, it fits no, pretty I mean, well, but I don't know. I like to think of my, well, I, I always thought of myself as more of the human torch than Mr. Fantastic, but I'll, I'll take it. Um, you know, <laughs> cause I can contort myself to make, uh, whatever bit that I'm currently working on, uh, into a funny bit. Right. So I'll take it. But what, what else, man? What, uh, I was kind of curious, like, what was your, like, how did you become a leftist and what is your, do you have, like, do you acknowledge a specific, like, tendency of anything or like, what's your vibe there? Uh, so tendency wise, um, uh, I kind of oscillate back and forth between self-describing as an anarcho-Maoist, uh, on which I will not elaborate what that means. Put it together <laughs> in your own heads, listeners, or just a Spartacist, uh, you know, this, the, uh, this, the Spartan um, uprising in eight, uh, 1918 in, in Berlin and, and Germany um, against the social democrats, uh, kind of like an underdog story where all of the good guys die in the end, including uh, Karl right Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, um, 
who were killed after that. Uh, they, they lost, uh, and the, the Social Democrats won and eventually kowtowed to, to Hitler. And uh, that's, that's part of the reason why, you know, I, I definitely, like, support the DSA and a lot of their actions, but I, I do acknowledge that historically Social Democrats have paved the way for fascists. Um, uh, but as far as what brought me to the left, um, I talked about this on Beat Beep a while back, but when I was in high school, I had a teacher who assigned uh, transcendentalists and then passages out of Marx. And I definitely, on the history and social studies side, when I was in school, I definitely had the pretty doctored version of world history where the Soviets killed millions of people with communism, and so did uh, Mao Zedong uh, with the Great Leap Forward, and um, the United States was always this pure force, and um, you know Fidel Castro is is evil and shit like that. Um, but that but that English teacher that assigned uh, that stuff got me thinking about that, and then he quit halfway through the school year to go live on a commune. And we never heard from him again, which I just thought was really, really <laughs> cool. So those were the seeds awesome. that were planted. Right and then later on in my undergrad, I started noticing these liberal hypocrisies uh, of kind of double think everywhere because, uh, you know, I, I was lucky enough to go to school on a scholarship. But a lot of the people that I went to school with, they were just rich so they could afford it. Um, uh, and and these people would like they were they were their bleeding hearts. Right. They would. And and being in the your late teens, early twenties, when you're in college, you're not exactly ideologically matured yet. But I, it just I was I felt surrounded by this liberal hypocrisy. But I didn't have a word for it because I thought that being a liberal was the epitome of being good, and I didn't yeah. know that there was a distinction yet between being a liberal and being a leftist. And that came later when I uh, friends of mine uh, through through friends of mine I started reading books like Society of the Spectacle. And uh, and uh, Kropotkin and actual things that Lenin wrote uh, instead of just like ironically on left book being like Lenin was a cool guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then I, I met the rest of my co-hosts through like various Internet meme circles and just kind of hanging out in New York and stuff. And uh, we all kind of had similar but different takes on on ideology, which I think was uh, instrumental in making sure that our podcast is interesting because we don't agree on everything. One of the biggest splits on the pod is John and John is an, an anarchist, uh, you know, n not simply an anarchist, but, you know, mainly an anarchist with some other tendencies involved. And, and Bryn is for the most part, uh, she self self identifies as a tanky. And so sparks, you know, sparks will fly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's good. It's dynamism there. Yeah. I mean, so I, I grew up like in fucking rural Texas. I was actually born in Shiner where they brew like Shiner Bach and shit like that. Nice. Into kind of like this fundamentalist Christian, like basically Christian fascism is kind of the, the milieu that I was reared in. And so really, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So that sounds insane. Yeah. So I have this weird, like kind of libertarian background in a, a lot of regards, but I always like was I think anti-capitalist ideas were always like present there, but I maybe didn't have the sophistication to really understand that shit. And so a lot of yeah. my 
push to the left comes from more so through philosophy and like existentialism and sort of realizing, well, you know, this whole working for a living is to do a bunch of pointless shit. Like if life is pointless, why the fuck should I be working this job that I hate? Like this doesn't fucking make any fucking sense. And so then that sort of grew and that's kind of was like my impetus. And then it just like accelerated. And I was mostly too coming from like, I'm very much into postmodern theory and philosophy as well. And so that's why I'm a little bit more anarcho anarchic, but I'm opening up. Like I've gotten more exposure over the last few years to like Marx and the more kind of concrete critiques of capital. That's great. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad to hear it. (laughs) Uh, I think it's interesting because you'd be surprised how many people just straight up, if they're feeling like shit, they'll just Google, uh, I, I hate working every day and then they'll, they'll come across communities. Um, some of this, I did an experiment once, uh, where I Googled a bunch of terms like that, like, you know, uh, working makes me want to die, stuff like that. And what I, what it came across was, uh, Reddit more often than not had the best SEO in the <laughs> search results. Yeah. And this is controlling for, you know, the algorithm doing it in, uh, incognito or through a VPN um, in order to get completely unfiltered Google results. And Reddit came up over and over again. And there were these communities. Uh, there's one called anti R slash anti work and R slash uh, bread tube where they have, you know, kind of like left YouTube videos and stuff like that. And it's interesting to me because I, I think that some of those groups are feeder groups into the leftist podcast sphere. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, dude. Cause, uh, honestly late, the late stage capitalism subreddit was a big fat force in me, um, getting reinvigorated in terms of like leftist thought and shit like that. So it absolutely is a pipeline for sure. Cause I've been a Redditor for great. like 10 years. I always joke that I'm like the one Redditor who's been around for that long that hasn't turned in fash. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I've been on the website about that long. Um, there have been times when I completely cu- I, I quit Reddit as if I was quitting nicotine or something like <laughs> that because it was so addicting. Yeah. And now I really only go on uh, just a couple of very niche gaming subreddits. And uh, yeah. like occasionally, if I'm really bored, I'll check out some political memes on there. Yeah. Yeah. My focus has been more- for a long time. I was like Reddit was my pretty much soul thing but then uh over the last like six months twitter has kind of taken over that but i'll still check out some of the like more niche sort of pop culture because i'm i'm very much like i'm a film guy like tv and storytelling camera like all that kind of shit i really enjoy so i really i, I get into my stories like i i really do i love narrative and i love the power that it has and all that kind of shit fascinates me so I'll definitely dive into like right now I'm big on, I I read a lot of comics over the last several years and like doom patrol is a really cool comic book that just uh, has a series that's out. So I've been checking that out. That's kind of where I'm mostly frequenting these days. Do you want a TV show recommendation? What do you got? What do you got for me? So I believe it's still on Netflix. It's a German uh, primetime, big budget TV drama called Babylon Berlin. And it takes place in 1929 in Berlin uh, during the Weimar Republic. And it's, it starts out as a buddy cop comedy 
following two guys on essentially the 1929 Berlin version of the special victims unit. (laughs) And then they uncover some stuff that's occult themed. And then they get into there's Trotskyists uh, and they have clashes with uh, Stalinist loyalists. And there's all sorts of, you know, social Democrats, uh, brown shirts come into it. It's, uh, it's not, I wouldn't necessarily say that the show itself has, uh, there's also explorations of mental health and, uh, PTSD in world war one, uh, veterans and the cinematography, the editing, the music, everything about it is really good because it's high budget. It's like if, you know, Germany had like a show with the budget of game of Thrones, this is what, you know, it's kind of like a, a noir style thing. It's, it's like, uh, like, you know, Blade Runner style noir. Okay. Um, but it does touch on some political themes, but it doesn't really have its own ideology um, because it's like, it's historical fiction. So it's not like, it's not really like glorifying communists. And it's not really, it's obviously not, you know, glorifying fash because there's laws against that in Germany. Um, but it's an incredible, uh, and it's also very realistic. Like it's, there's a lot of historical realism in the show. Um, so I highly recommend that show. Right on. If you like weird shit, which is like, that's totally my milieu is the weird out there, most trippy shit that you can watch. And uh, if you haven't gotten to Legion on FX, that's definitely one. I mean, it's not really so much geared towards like any thing to do with leftism, but just visually and is, I think, a really fucking amazing show. It's like Noah Hawley that did um, mm. a lot of the fucking, what is it, the uh, the series that's based on Fargo. But that's pretty cool. I'll check it out. It's uh, more right like now a... I'm working my way through uh, Sopranos. Oh yeah. Oh, I never oh saw yeah. You were originally. mentioning, you were mentioning you hadn't seen that originally, which that to me is the high point of prestige TV. That's fucking just, it's incredible. Brilliant. Number one. Yeah, right I just there. finished season four last night. Um, and I watched like two episodes this morning. While I was just lying in bed. Um, <laughs> It's amazing. It's oh, it's so, so good. good. It's so fucking good. Um, I think yeah. really like after the fifth season, I didn't like it that much, but seasons three, four, and five were just fucking incredible. Ralph Cifaretto, probably my all-time favorite character on really? the show. Oh, yeah. Just such a fucking sleazeball scumbag. Yeah, I feel that. I hate that guy. I love Pauly. Oh, Paulie and Sylvia were my favorites. Paulie is number two. He's fucking great as well, for sure. But I, I lo- you know, he's just a guy who loves his mom. <laughs> you know, to me, one of the scenes like with Ralph, whenever Janice is like, uh, she's got I don't know his vibrator or something in his ass. That scene, like, <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. just like, she's pegging. I him. was just like, woo! Like that just that shocked the fucking fuck out hilarious. of me whenever I saw that. That just came out of like nowhere, and I just loved it. And, I just, and it was like a major plot point in season four, how yeah. Ralph just, well, we can't, well, I don't want to spoil it. But yeah, he's, uh, he's got these paraphilias. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But anyways, uh, do, are there any last thoughts or things you want to share? I know we've been going about a half hour. I don't want to take up too much more of your Sunday. No, this has been, this has been really fun. Um, I, I really appreciate you having me on, uh, as far as Anytime, posting, man. As far as posting, it's a numbers game, but it's not qual—it's not quantity over quality. It's like 
uh, it's like a quantity of quality <laughs> over right. quantity, right? You know, like like you you have to post a lot to to do well on Twitter. Yeah, but you you got to filter like like shit posting is shit posting, but there still needs to be a level like a bar set for your posts. You know, otherwise it's just a stream of consciousness and it's hard to, to pick out the gold, you know, yeah, very which true. with you, there's a lot, there's a lot of gold there. Yeah. Cr- critique my, critique my posting for me. G- <laughs> give me the, give me the straight truth. Oh, I, I asked, yeah. I did ask. So, um, ironically capitalism disliker and I, we did a pod a couple of weeks ago, but I fucked up and only recorded my end of the audio somehow. Uh, so it's been, sucks. it's been lost to history, sadly. Damn. But he was just saying that I, I get a little bit too crass sometimes and that I should probably just like uh, hire like a QA engineer maybe. <laughs> well, uh, I have three basic guidelines for how to do good content on any platform. Um, it also is like a, a specific style of content. But the, the first, of course, is... Yeah, the audience needs to feel like they get it, like they like it's an in joke that only that they're a part of a, a exclusive. There's a bo- feeling of belonging. They feel like they're a part of an exclusive group that gets the joke, uh, even though that it it is actually like a fairly wide, widely understood joke. Um, the second is uh, an absurdist or existential um, kind of bend to it. Like there's got to be something that speaks to how absurd and surreal and miserable everybody is in our late stage capitalist society. And the third thing is always, maybe not always, but like, or, or sometimes implied it's either implicit or explicit, a jarring non sequitur Uh, (laughs) and the jarring non sequitur. You can think of that sometimes as the punchline. Sometimes the jarring non sequitur can be implied by the punchline. Uh, And those are kind of my three guidelines for, content across any platform whether it's a whether it's a picture meme whether it's you know you're making a a video and you're putting a song over a video of something else or it's just a a 280 character text post those are my those are my personal three golden rules and and good posting rules to live by i think because you do well like i said you're one you're on my mount rushmore of posters (laughs) for sure you're you're up there and uh yeah it's uh it's I really do appreciate your work. And uh, to quote Tony Soprano, it's like you just kind of peer up from the slit and you just fucking like cap somebody. And then you like <laughs> you slink down for a while. And it's just these very surgical strikes. Whereas like I'm, I love ju- that. I'm just dropping like a frag, a frag grenade and <laughs> several times a day and hoping that something like connects with an audience. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I try to live. I try to think what would Tony Soprano do? So I live my life. <laughs> But uh, Todd, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate it. I was very excited to have you on. Uh, like I said, again, love your your posting style. Has really huh. inspired me, and uh, I'm a big fan of the show. And definitely, uh, you're would love to have you at at any point again, whenever you're willing and have the time. And uh, yeah, yeah, I would love just, that. Just thanks again, man. Thanks, Coop. Thanks for having me on. Um, and uh, before I go, I want to just um, obviously plug, um, you know, the Beep Beep Lettuce podcast. You can find us at Twitter, at or sorry, on Twitter, at Beep Beep Leaf. Um, we have a Patreon. We have Patreon episodes. Um, 
but first and foremost, obviously support uh, Cooper's podcast and everything. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on, man. Absolutely. So once again, this is Todd from Beep Beep Lettuce at Argument Winner. Check out the podcast. Check out his post. He's a fucking excellent poster. <laughs> and uh, thanks again, Todd. I'll let you get back to your Sunday, man. All right. All right. Beep on, y'all. Beep on.